Never before have we had such a blessed opportunity to build the more perfect union of our founders' dreams. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is the true genius of America. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creed. We dare not forget today that we are the heirs of that first revolution. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Free at last! Free at last! Thank God Almighty! We are free at last! America, we have come so far. We have seen so much. But there's so much more to do. In 1989, a financial analyst from Philadelphia bought an old painting of a country scene for just $4 at a flea market in Pennsylvania, mostly because he just liked its frame. And as he inspected a small tear on the canvas when he got home, the frame began to fall apart in his hands, and he found behind the painting an old folded document that turned out to be one of the first 500 copies of America's Declaration of Independence printed in 1776. At the time, only 23 copies were known to exist. And in 1991, he sold that Declaration of Independence for $2.42 million. And I want to tell you the reason why it sold for that much. The Bible says in Proverbs 29 and verse 2, when a wicked man rules, the people groan. After the French and Indian War in 1763, British Parliament taxed colonists in America, they said, to help pay the bills for the war they had protected them in. The Stamp Act was passed in 1765, and it enabled the British to impose taxes on every legal business document, newspapers, books, pamphlets, they were all taxed. And Americans resented this because they were being taxed by a faraway government in which they weren't represented. British customs inspectors armed with papers from Parliament would enter people's homes even if they had no evidence of a Stamp Act violation and they would ransack people's belongings all in search of this contraband. Soon, these searches, these warrantless searches became a rallying point for opposition to British rule. And a uniquely American view of power and liberty as natural enemies emerged. Americans didn't want a government that told them how to live their lives, what religion to believe, or what even to write about in the paper. They knew um, European history well enough to know that they wanted to set up a government without a king and a church without a pope. And so on the 19th of April, 1775, British soldiers and American colonists, they exchanged gunfire in Massachusetts, and the shot 
was heard around the world. It was the start of the American Revolution, the birthing of a new nation. During the war, the Second Continental Congress, you can look that up online, it acted as a national government for the 13 colonies who were rebelling against Britain. The Continental Army was formed to battle the British, and King George III declared formally that the 13 British colonies were in a state of revolt. In 1775, Benjamin Franklin said, Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. In May of 1775, Thomas Jefferson, a statesman and diplomat, he was asked to put into words why the colonies wanted to break away from Britain. In 17 days, at the age of 33, Jefferson completed what was the first draft of the American Declaration of Independence. The founding fathers of America, they signed that document July 4, 1776. And at the signing, the delegate from Rhode Island, Stephen Hopkins, he famously said, My hand trembles, but my heart does not. The declaration listed valid complaints against King George III. He, it says, King George III, has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of offices to harass our people and eat out, out their substance. He has combined with others to subject us, imposing taxes on us without our consent. And it also, the Declaration, outlined the legal and natural rights of its citizens. And this is a line you may be more familiar with. It said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It was the first country to declare its independence from a colonizing power in modern times and the first nation founded as a democracy. Well, when the King of England read that Declaration of Independence, he basically said, and of course I paraphrase, I'm required to look after you and you are required to do what I say. He believed that everybody was born with an obligation. But the beauty of the Declaration of Independence says we are all born equal, which means governments can only do what the people allow it to do, and that requires consent, and consent requires representation, and representation requires a written way for this to happen, i.e. we're talking about a constitution. Now, America's first constitution is not as well known as its current one. It's called the Articles of Confederation, and it was approved by the Continental Congress of 1777, and it was effective in 1781. But this first constitution, the Articles of Confederation, failed. Why? I'll tell you. Mainly, it was because people were afraid of giving power to a central government, and so they had a very weak central government. In the words of Alexander Hamilton, he said it was neither fit for war nor peace. You see, if just one state voted no on any amendment, it was rejected. Also, there was no executive branch of government to enforce acts or a centralized court system, and it didn't even have a national military either. Congress under this, the Articles of Confederation, it had no authority to tax. Plus, states were unwilling to give money for a central government that they didn't trust. 
So it had no national currency, and each state just printed their own money. So when the American Revolutionary War, Revolutionary War it's a mouthful, uh, to gain independence from the grip of Great Britain and King George III, when it finally ended with the signing of the Treaty of Paris in Paris in 1783, the British crown formally recognized American independence. The Revolutionary War ended, and America was officially at last free. It was time for the United States to form a new government. And so in 1787, the Founding Fathers convened to fix the problems that they had under the Articles of Confederation. And they decided to start on a fresh page. It was tricky business, but they pursued it with the faith in God and a lot of hard work. The Founding Fathers were well-educated students of history. And they recognized as they looked at the past that the underlying principles of law were the Ten Commandments found in the Bible and also the Golden Rule, just from the Bible as well. In a letter to the legislature of Massachusetts, dated January 17, 1794, Samuel Adams said this, In the supposed state of nature, all men are equally bound by the laws of nature, or so to speak more properly, the laws of the Creator. Isn't that interesting? They saw that the unalienable rights were given by the Creator, by God, and they could only be sustained in society if they were protected under a code of law that was in harmony with a higher law, that higher law being nature's law or the law of nature's God, the Creator. To illustrate this concept, the commandment, thou shalt not steal. It had a corresponding natural right of the freedom to get and to own through honest initiative private property. This law and this right the founders believed was of a higher order than any law that man could write. This belief, it opened the floodgates of progress and millions came to the shores of America to participate in I guess, the miracle of America. On the 17th of September, 1787, 114 years before the Australian Constitution existed, by the way, the 13 states met together in Philadelphia to sign the final draft, written mostly by James Madison, of a remarkable blueprint for self-government. It's called the U.S. Constitution. This document was ratified repeatedly in the following years and came into effect formally in 1789. But this document was an amalgamation of the best ideas from state constitutions, the, the Articles of Confederation, and political philosophers from history. And basically, the founder said this, if government is made up of people and people aren't perfect, then government power should be limited. For, in the words of James Madison, we require to be governed because we are not angels. But government must be limited because angels do not govern men. And so a limited government to secure for generations to come the God-given rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it was built on three core beliefs. Number one, the natural and unalienable rights granted by God. Two, a written constitution. And three, virtue existing among the people. 
The Constitution created a national federal government that consisted of a legislative, executive, and judicial branch, and each with checks and balances, so that no one person could run the country at any one time. They'd seen the King of England try that, execute all three branches, and only to come to be the very definition of tyranny. And as we already heard, Justin reminded us that the idea of the three branches of government, it was actually gleaned from a French philosopher who found it in the Bible. Isaiah 33:22 says, For the Lord is our judge. That's the judicial. The Lord is our lawgiver and the Lord is our king. Federal government power was divided. Executive power, the branch most prone to being king-like, was given to the president and his cabinet, but it was held in check by the legislative power in Congress, made up of the House of Representatives and Senate, and judicial power given to the Supreme Court with the purpose of interpreting the laws. And all of these important actions that the government might have to make, it required the input of more than one branch of government. So, for example, Congress could pass laws and then the president could veto them. Federal and state power in government was divided and what emerged was a beautiful framework for freedom. But some still felt that it was flawed. They said it was flawed because it said what the government could do but not what it couldn't do. And this is an important point because, you see, democracy and liberty, they're not the same. In a democracy... You have a say, but the majority rules. But liberty, liberty means that even in a democracy, you have individual rights that no majority should be able to take away. Four years after the Constitution was drafted, James Madison, who strongly opposed making any changes to the Constitution, he wrote up a list of amendments, 10 of which were adopted as law in 1791, and these 10 amendments became known as the Bill of Rights. They included freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, the right to peaceably assemble, and the right to bear arms. In the words of Benjamin Franklin, when religion is good, it will take care of itself. When it is not able to take care of itself and God does not see it fit to take care of it so that it has to appeal to the civil power for support, it's evidence to my mind that the cause is a bad one. The U.S. Constitution was this bold experiment in democracy, previously unexplored by any nation in history, and it has worked for over 200 years because it is built on timeless Christian principles. And I personally believe that God has blessed the United States of America for acknowledging Him in its Declaration of Independence, Pledge of Allegiance, it's in the National Anthem and even all over their money. George Washington felt the same way, actually. In 1789, he said, The man must be bad indeed, who can look upon the events of the American Revolution without feeling the warmest gratitude towards the great author of the universe, whose divine interposition was so frequently manifested in our behalf. And it is my earnest prayer, he went on to say, that we may so conduct ourselves as to merit a continuance of those blessings with which we have hitherto been favored. 
When I first flew to the United States, I was so excited. I, I remember listening to Whitney Houston's stirring rendition of the Star Spangled Banner over and over again. And I remember as I saw the mountains of America come into view for the first time from the plane, I was thinking to myself, wow, it's the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I never imagined that one day I'd marry an American too. But the first three words of the Constitution are powerful. It begins with, we the people. And they remind us that the legacy of American patriots was a government by the people, for the people, allowing for debate and differences. Its power didn't come from a king or Congress or Pope, as it did for the nations in the old world, but it came from the people. This is why Gladstone called it the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time by the brain and purpose of man. And in 1829, Madison also wrote, The happy union of these states is a wonder, their constitution a miracle, their example the hope of liberty throughout the world. But there was a dark side to America's past. The Bible even recognizes this dark side would exist. Revelation 13:11 says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. There's an incredible, amazing contradiction of terms right here. A lamb-like nation with a constitution built on Christian principles, the Bible says, would speak and behave not like a puppy, but like a dragon. And for America, slavery was definitely dragon-like. Former slave Henry Garnett, he called slavery a monster. Ironically, when the Declaration of Independence was even signed, more than 500,000 slaves were on American soil. You and I think about this and we think, how could this be? Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Was America great or was it terrible? Well, the truth is, at the time, it was both. The French and American revolutions were reactions to tyranny, and slavery was a moral issue that violated the principles of the revolution as well. This was part of the lingering effect of the old world. And Europeans were attracted to the U.S. with the discovery of vast mineral deposits and, and other natural resources. But as they came to the U.S., they brought with them the baggage from where they came from, and part of that baggage was slavery. In the 1770s, African slaves made up a fifth of the population. And in the land of the free, the South's population was 40% slave. This is amazing because in the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson had said, and I've told you this before, all men are created equal. But there's this amazing inconsistency because he said that, and guess what? Slave owners agreed. In fact, most slave owners were even Bible-believing believing Christians. Yet Jefferson, who wrote those words he, and even believed that slavery was a hideous blot and evil, history tells us that he himself was also a slave owner. And although he was married and had six kids with his wife, 
He also had a 35-year-long relationship with his wife's half-sister, who was also his slave. He had several children with her, and then when he died, uh, his children were the only slaves that he freed. And while owning hundreds of slaves, George Washington, he also condemned slavery. But as he was leading the Revolutionary War, saying that people are born free, he saw the hypocrisy of this. And when he died, he left orders to free his slaves after his death. So the founding fathers, they knew that slavery was wrong, but they took very slow action against it. And we're scratching our heads and asking why. Well, it was because talking about slavery risked the entire Republican experiment. The economy of the South was built on the backbone of slavery. Southern colonists, they relied on slavery on their plantations. It was making them rich, and they weren't about to surrender this without a fight. But a growing abolitionist sentiment brought the slave and non-slave states to a crisis point after a representational Congress failed. The national political structure was revised again. And what was known as the Great Compromise was adopted, where in the House of Representatives, representation would be based on population, while in the Senate, there would be two representatives from each state, regardless of the size of the population in that state. They asked the question, should slaves count in the population? Because you see, this was important. Population determined the number of representatives each state had in the House of Representatives and how many electoral votes each state had in presidential elections. It also determined the amount of tax that each state would pay directly to the federal government. Southern states saw this. They recognized the additional power that they could have coming their way if slaves were counted in the population, and so they were willing to pay higher taxes. The states argued over this and finally compromised, agreeing that each slave would count for three-fifths of a person. The word slavery is not mentioned in the Constitution, but it's right there referenced, three-fifths of a person. And it's amazing to me that people were willing to break up families, to wreck lives for monetary gain. It just reminds us of how easily human beings justify inhumanity to others for personal benefit. This three-fifths compromise, it meant that the South had a greater representation in Congress, in the Electoral College, and this enabled Southern slave owners to win 12 of the first 16 presidential elections. On this, the United States were very much the divided states. Ten states by this time had outlawed the slave trade, but three allowed it to continue, namely Georgia and North and South Carolina. So the ten threatened to leave the convention in protest, and another committee was convened, and another compromise was reached, which said that Congress would have the power to ban the trade, but not until 1800. They then extended the date by eight years and said 1808. During this time, thousands of slaves were brought to America in the lead-up to 1808 when Congress finally voted to end it. But South Carolina alone imported 40,000 slaves between the years 1803 and 1808. Many untold evils, rapes and murders happened in the name of slavery. The last major issue concerning slavery was that southern states wanted northern states to return escaped slaves so that they that had found freedom there. 
And so a Fugitive Slave Act promising the capture and return of escaped slaves was placed in the Constitution in 1793 and it was later revised and enforced with greater power in 1850. This had a devastating effect on the nation. Some slaves are recaptured and cruelly, brutally branded. Thousands of slaves who had found their freedom in the North were kidnapped and returned to their former slave owners in the South, experiencing cruelty beyond the scope of words. The experience, by the way, of slaves in the South was on a par with the atrocities of the Holocaust. It was evil. Both Fugitive Slave Acts were repealed by Congress in 1864. Northern states were very careful when they picked their battles on this issue because they wanted to secure a new government. It took years for the American Republic to approach the ideals that it had expressed in the Declaration of Independence. When Abraham Lincoln was elected as president in 1860, he boldly advocated banning all slavery in all territories, saying that it was unconstitutional. And quoting the words of Jesus Christ, Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He then added, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. A year later, tensions between the free states and the slave states reached a boiling point and the South attacked the North and the Civil War began. Interestingly, as you read about it, both sides believed that God was on their side. The North saw the war as a punishment for slavery, while the Confederates in the South saw it as a test of faith. In this war, 620,000 of the 2.4 million soldiers were killed and millions more were injured. Much of the South was ruined. It was the deadliest war ever fought on U.S. soil. Harriet Tubman, she lived during this time. She was just five feet tall, born into slavery in eastern Maryland. In 1849, she had fled to Pennsylvania, which was a journey, by the way, of, of 161 kilometers for our American friends. That's 100 miles to freedom. But she went back to the South, not just once, but history tells us 13 times in the space of 10 years to free her friends and family. She's called the Moses of her people because during that time she rescued 70 members of her friends and family, including her precious parents. But when the Civil War began, she served as a nurse, a spy and a cook, and she became the first woman in U.S. history to lead a raid in battle so successful it freed over 700 slaves. On the 9th of April, 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered his Confederate troops to the Union's Ulysses Grant, bringing an end to the four-year war. And five days later, Abraham Lincoln was shot and he died at the age of 56. The people who had so recently rejoiced at the end of the Civil War now reeled from Lincoln's shocking assassination. A French historian, as I wrap this up, a French historian once asked James Lowell, how long will the American Republic endure? He replied, as long as the ideas of the men who founded it continue dominant. You see, as you look back through history and you see the development of the U.S. nation, you see that in a republic, the majority is sovereign. And the majority, because it is sovereign, it also becomes the most dangerous thing. This means that the greatness of America stands or falls with her people. 
Another French statesman famously said that America is great because she is good. When she ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. I'll end on this note. It's the words of James Madison. He said this, We have staked the whole future of our nation, not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political constitutions upon the capacity of each of ourselves to govern ourselves according to the moral principles of the Ten Commandments of God. I'm so glad that you could join us for tonight's presentation at America and the End. But if you'd like to know more, if you'd like to dig deeper into what the Bible says about the times that we are living in right now, then we want to invite you to connect with us. There's a number on your screen. Please text or call us. We'd love to hear from you if you would like to study more about what the Bible says, or perhaps you'd even like someone to personally study the Bible with you. Please don't hesitate. Call that number, text that number, and we will be in touch with you. God bless. Good evening and welcome back to our live Q&A with America in the End. Uh, my name is Matt Parra and I'm the producer of this program. And these are our speakers, Sarissa, Justin, Lyle. And uh, we're here to answer your questions. As you guys know, those of you who've joined us before, each evening we field questions from our viewing audience uh, about that evening's presentation and any of the presentations that we have uh, presented on thus far. Charissa, good job. I really enjoyed the presentation. Praise the Lord. I yes. <laughs> right. I was thinking about how much I should compliment you uh, on the presentation to see how red your face would get, <laughs> how, whatever. But yeah, glory to God. It, the Holy Spirit really blessed. It was very informative um, and very well presented. And so good job on that. Um, I'm sure there are many people out there in Internet land who have questions and comments and thoughts uh, guys, we are happy to hear whatever questions you have. You can try to stump us if you want um, or uh, not, but uh, we can even just field your comments. We want to hear what you think about the presentation for this evening. So uh, we already got some questions that have come in from YouTube and Facebook, but before we address our questioners, I want to just uh, get the ball rolling by asking you, Sharissa, and really just our panel, um, What's the relevance today of tonight's presentation? So you talked about the U.S. Constitution being a framework for freedom. Mm. Uh, and that really was, in a sense, the genesis of the freedoms that we all now seem to enjoy here in the Western world. Um, okay, so in the whole presentation, how, what would you say do we find the relevance for today? Yeah, well, I actually had a little bit of trouble landing it when I was writing it, but it's since crystallized in my mind to be this. The U.S. government, it's founded on three core beliefs. The Constitution is founded on three core beliefs. Number one, the inalienable rights that are given to us by the Creator. Number two, the Constitution, so a written form or process of government. And number three, virtue existing among the people. And uh, if you think about it, if any of these sort of crumble, well, then the whole thing kind of gets out of balance. And the last point in the presentation that I mentioned there was that, you know, in a republic, the sovereignty lies not in any one person in government, but it actually lies in the majority. So it's the power lies with the people. So that's a wonderful thing, but it also becomes a dangerous thing if virtue does not exist among the people. And that is why the founding fathers really 
took a lot of time to stress the importance of educating people on how they came, their history, so that they wouldn't mm. repeat the tyranny that they had seen in the old world. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Um, Lyle, I'm, I'm looking at you over there. <laughs> Lyle's got something to say. I can feel it. I can, I can just sense it in the air. Brother. Okay, so yeah. the relevancy that I see to tonight's presentation in particular is that when we, when we look at where America came from, the constitution that was put together, and where we are now, and then what the Bible says about the future mm. and how the Bible says that, you know, this is going to be dismantled in the future. Rights and freedoms will be taken away. Religious liberty will disappear in particular. It helps us to understand, you know, knowing the past helps us to understand the present and then the Bible prophecy helps us mm. to understand the future. Right. And, of course, when you understand Bible prophecy, then it becomes one big complete picture and you can say, okay, this is where we began. Mm -hmm. This is where we are now. This is what is about to happen. And then, of course, the really good news, which is Jesus is about to come. Because what we see happening in relationship to the United States, Constitution of America, is all about the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And you know, to add to what you guys are saying, in order for the Bible's predictions to come true fully, you'd have to see a reneging of the fundamental principles of the United States Constitution. That, that has to happen. And so, really, the wise and careful student of Scripture would be looking to see, are we seeing that in the world today? Like, are we seeing that in the United, in the United States today and in the West in general? Right? And in the next presentation that uh, Lyle's going to be taking tomorrow night, you're going to be answering that in greater detail, I believe, if, I, if memory Absolutely. serves me right. Absolutely. Specific we're examples to... of how those freedoms are being removed. What we're going to do is, is kind of look back over the last 30 to 40 years to see how you know, rights and freedoms and principles that we've all taken for granted have been systematically being undermined mm -hmm. and removed, even though we don't notice it because we don't feel it so much, because it's not affecting us while we're sitting in our living room, um, eating our popcorn and watching some inane movie on TV. Yeah, that's right. It's like the, the, the frog effect, right? Like <laughs> exactly. that, that metaphor of the frog, you put them in the water, you gradually increase the temperature, and before you know it, the frog cooks to death. Uh, could that be us? We have been entertained into oblivion, yeah. and we have no idea what is happening around us right now, what is taking place in our world. Yeah, that's it. Okay, hey, we're going to get to our uh, first question for the evening, and it, it's coming to us uh, from Facebook, and uh, the name of the person asking the question is Joshimer. So, oh, no, wait, we asked, this is, this is an old question. Uh, sorry, it's from Justin, and he asks, if slavery was the key moral question at America's founding, what is it today? But uh, by the way, the question assumes that there's a there's a as the question says a key moral question today, right? It assumes that that's the case that there's something as significant happening in the United States, which is a violation of the Constitution and the rights that it guarantees today. But I'll just leave the question with you guys and see where we go. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. Proverbs 14.34, and I think Sharissa quoted this in her presentation. Uh, Justin, great question. Uh, great name, by the way. No, <laughs> um, Proverbs 14, verse 34. Very powerful. It says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Uh, the book of Proverbs, this book of wisdom that 
that uh, was a collection of different Proverbs that the wisest man who ever lived besides Jesus himself, King Solomon, compiled and put together. There are multiple verses in the book of Proverbs where it talks about how right doing and righteousness will exalt a nation, essentially, or a ruler, whereas immorality will cause a nation to degrade and plummet. And um, it's, I think, what Sharissa summarized in those three points being the, the core uh, upon which freedom uh, stands. The third one being um, the, and what was the exact word? Virtue, the virtue among the people. Mm-hmm. When the virtue among the people uh, disappears, when it dissipates, when it goes down to a certain point, then the constitution can be overturned. Laws can be created to contradict it. Amendments to the amendments that annul the former amendments that set aside our freedom uh, can be expected to be seen. And, uh, you know, if, if you're wondering if there is any rise in immorality in our nation and or in the United States, as well as the Western world and the world in general, um, you need look really no further than the news and statistics of the last 20 years. And um, in reality, yeah, I think the greatest moral issue, the most key moral issue in America now and all of the West is morality. Um, will we choose to do what is right? And uh, what God says is right. And once again, our nation in the United States is founded upon these principles. Um, or will we just do what seems to be right in our own eyes? What feels good? What, what is cool and what's actually, you know, in style, even though it'll lead to the degradation and destruction of a nation. And I think what we see in America right now with rioting and looting taking place in different parts, um, that's a perfect example of the fact that lawlessness is increasing. Mm. Um, you know, to be peacefully protesting is a right enshrined in the constitution. We should have, we do have the right to do that. But when other people take that as a pretext and come in amongst peaceful protesters and turn it into needless rioting and looting and shooting, uh, killing police officers, killing innocent people, destroying businesses, robbing them blind, taking everything out, no matter what your ethnic background is, as a business owner, your business gets destroyed, then it's a sure tale sign that morality is plunging in our nation. Mm. Oh, really good. That's a full-on answer right there. A good answer, man. Yeah, great great job. I want to say just in, well, I don't, you guys, anybody else want to address the question? Not after Justin finished with that. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about it yeah. as he was speaking, like you've got this swing to immorality mm. and it's like a pendulum, you know, yeah. the next thing will be we need to Get legislate to morality. That's right. And mm. that's kind of hinted at as we continue to Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because as soon as, um, you know, the, the riots and the, the, the recent riots in America began to break out, I think in, in Portland, they had over a hundred days consecutively of rioting there. And, uh, it was all, you know, sparked through the death of George Floyd. Mm. But it seems to me that the, the number one, there's not a lot of, answers like a lot of solutions that are coming out of the riots like like we're really upset because of racial injustice which is perfectly fine be very upset about racial injustice when you see it when you can identify it and you see it uh be upset about it and stand up against it that's cool um but generally speaking what i'm hearing coming out of the united states from friends family and from the media is not a lot of solutions there's a lot of this is wrong that's wrong but not a lot of solutions this is wrong so let's burn down stores that's, that's hardly constructive or productive or useful. 
Um, but, but second to this, the, the very few solutions that I am catching wind of all have to do with the reneging of freedoms. Mm. And that seems to be everyone's course of action and go-to. Mm. And so I really like what you said. If you have a government by the people and for the people, and then the people unfit themselves for self-rule because they lack self-control, lack discipline, lack the capacity of self-governance and self-rule, now the whole system crumbles because the system mm. is erected legally by the people and for the people. And if you descend then into just mob rule, um, violence, and, 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 uh, and looting and burning, mm. well, then, you know, and, and, and some of the things that are happening in, in America are absolutely just wild. I saw this thing where this, this report where there was a, it wasn't a report, it was a newscast, and there was a person in the audience who was speaking to one of their local legislators, and they were saying, hey, you know, I live in a neighborhood, and, you know, the next the neighborhood just not not too down the street, too far down the street from me it was like just broken it up and messed up by looters and rioters. And what what are you guys going to do? Because you're saying defund the police mm. and like I, what's up with my neighborhood? And the person said to them the the most bizarre answer. It was something like that was uh, you, you that, you're you're just asking that question because of how privileged you are. Mm. You're so privileged that that's the reason why you're asking that question and. And that it was it's not a good answer, you know. So when your legislators are saying you're privileged because you want law and order and peace and safety in your neighborhoods, but anyways, um, I would want to just say I'm answering longer than I wanted to hear, guys. But <laughs> thank you for being a captive audience. <laughs> but uh, in, when Revelation 13 says that the United States has a lamb-like or Christ-like form or system of government, but yet it speaks like a dragon. I think it was Lyle who pointed out that that speaking like a dragon is speaking like an imperial empire, like speaking like imperial Rome. Mm -hmm. Now, the issue of slavery was the United States speaking as a dragon. In imperial Rome, you had slavery. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a lot of other things that um, show us the United States speaking as a dragon. For example, the United States uh, Constitution mandates that the government will not go to war without an act of Congress. And the reason being is that Congress it represents the, the citizenry of the nation. So when you have uh, a war that has begun or military action that has begun due to an executive order or just you know certain parts of the government deciding that we're going to go bomb this country or do so, that's actually unconstitutional and therefore quite dragon-like. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to add, there's lots of things that combine together to communicate the United States speaking. As a dragon. All right. Um, question number two. This is a question from YouTube, and uh, don't know how to pronounce this name. I'm sorry. So it looks something like Wojcich. It's a Wojcich. 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 Yeah. Wojcich. Okay. Cool. Wojcich has asked: Is climate change and Sunday rest a step to the fulfillment of Revelation 13? Now, I'm assuming that what. Uh, Wojciech is is referencing when they say when he says or she says Sunday rest um, that there are certain Eastern European countries that today uh, in our modern era have legislated that people must rest on Sunday and the United States of America in one of our presentations we're going to talk about that soon has in its system of law certain laws that mandate Sunday's rest um, but Sunday rest is a religious institution. So this is what the question is about. Who wants to tackle it? Uh, in message number seven, Wojciech, great question. 
Um, so Wojciech and anyone else who's wondering the same thing, in message number seven, we're going to spend basically 30 minutes. Of those 30 minutes, I'd say the last 10 to 15 minutes of it, answering this exact question. Are the two connected? Um, are these old, you know, Sunday blue laws on the books of America and these uh, laws connected to rest on Sunday and ceasing from work on Sundays connected to climate change at all? And uh, I think you're going to be amazed at the quotes that we look at together. So keep watching and um, hope that you tune in for message number seven, which will be next Tuesday night. So a week from tonight uh, should be a fuller answer than we can really give in a few minutes here. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Anybody else want to jump on? No, I really don't want to spoil uh, Justin's thunder. It's, 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 <laughs> Thanks, Lyle. It's, a, it's an amazing presentation. Just be there for it. Yeah. Cool. Hey, there was a question that we don't have here on, on our list of questions for this evening, but you were mentioning, Lyle, before we went live, that there was a question in regards to the separation of church and state that had come in. Yes. Is this a good time to maybe discuss that? We had a questioner on Facebook or YouTube just write in a question and said, that they disagreed with something that uh, one of our presentations said in regards to the separation of church and state in the Old Testament. So I think, Lyle, you had uh, proposed the idea that in the mm -hmm. Old Testament of the Bible, yes. that God made a distinction between civil and religious uh, leadership. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good question. And if my memory serves me correctly, they were asking something along the lines of, okay, if you had separation of church and state, why was it that pagan practices and pagan religions were expelled, uh, witchcraft and so forth was expelled from the nation? Yep. I, I could be getting this wrong, but let's talk about that because I think that's a really important issue to talk about. Okay, so very simply, the Old Testament definitely had separation of church and state. That was part, that was key and foundational to the constitution that Moses wrote because you remember that Moses wrote, you know, um, he wrote a constitution for a theocracy, but he then put into it, okay, when you rebel and decide to have a king, um, this is how the king will act. And the king had no place at all mm -hmm. within the temple services. Okay, but then how do you have, how do you have separation of church and state when, yes, God did say that people who practiced Wicca, for instance, were to be expelled from the nation. And I think what we need to notice here is the difference between how separation of church and state is expressed in a republic versus a theocracy. Mm -hmm. Because in those two different systems, you're going to have the same principle of separation of church and state, but a different expression of it. Interesting. Yeah. And so um, in a theocracy, what you've got to consider is that God's church is a nationality. And so to become a member of God's church, you become a member of that particular nationality. That's what you choose to do. And there were many people who were proselytes. The Ethiopian uh, eunuch uh, in the book of Acts would be a good example of that. Uh, Cornelius, the Italian, would be a good example of that. There are quite a few good examples of that in the Bible. The difference is that these days the church is a movement rather than a nationality. Now, just as we would not accept someone into membership within our church, who was practicing Wicca. We would say, no, we accept people into membership within our church who profess Jesus Christ and the beliefs and teachings of the Bible as expressed you know, by our church. Uh, you've got exactly the same thing when God's church is a nationality. 
So there's where the difference lies. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if there was a separation, like a, a separation in the sense that there were completely, totally different entities, but there was a, a functional oh, yeah. separation within the confines Absolutely. of the nation itself. Yeah. That's cool, man. Yeah, King, King Isaiah, yeah. you know, when he goes into the temple to offer incense, mm-hmm. and God strikes him with leprosy. Right. You know? Because he keeps those two sides of the nation separate. That's right. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Wow. Pretty cool. Love it. Yeah, great. Thanks, man. Great clarification. Mm. I think sometimes we get confused over the different laws that you have in the Bible. You know, you've got the, the Ten Commandment law, which is, you know, it's the constitution of God that's eternal. Mm-hmm. You've got the laws of health and hygiene, and they're kind of very foolish if you don't follow those. Uh, it's interesting how the laws of hy- health and hygiene found in the Bible are the driving force behind the response to COVID right now. You know, suddenly everybody is doing exactly what the Bible says in relationship to quarantine and washing of hands and so forth. Um, so you've got the, the laws of the, 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 uh, the Ten Commandments, you've got the laws of health and hygiene, you've got the laws of the sanctuary service that we often refer to as the ceremonial law, which begins with sin and ends with the cross. But then you've got the laws of the theocracy that involve the civil laws and the civil penalties that begin with the time of Moses and end with the Babylonian captivity. Mm. And if you start to confuse those two and all those laws and blend them together mm. and make them all one big, you know, just stir them into one big yeah. pot, then you make the Bible contradict itself all over the place. Mm. Yes, that's great. It's the, the Old Testament law of Moses was a, what many people, as you mentioned, was a system of laws with different categories of law. Exactly. So to confuse them, that's a really good point. And I, I noticed that when a lot of people uh, approach Scripture, when they approach the Bible, they often fail to make that distinction and end up in all kinds of uh, interesting places because of that. Yeah. A lot of really if you don't make that distinction, then you're going to be trying to enforce the civil penalties of ancient Israel where, you know, people would be stoned. Right. Uh because, well, how do you get rid of the Ten, you know, how, if you're going to get rid of that, you've got to get rid of the Ten Commandments and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But when you recognize that God clearly outlines a distinction between them, then it all becomes straightforward and simple. Mm-hmm. And the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Yeah. It's, it, and two, I maybe, I wonder if maybe that's a mistake that the church over the ages made where it set up inquisitions and began to impose civil penalties because it, it seemed to want to function similarly to the Old Testament theocracy, but that age was done, that era was finished, mm-hmm. and Jesus said, my kingdom is no longer of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. And uh, there will be a theocracy again where God will take upon himself to exact civil punishments for those who have practiced evil and whatever, but, mm-hmm. um, but that time's not now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great stuff, man. Cool. Well, um, let's get to the bow. Uh-oh. You just look down, and then all of a sudden, there's more questions. So, cool. Uh, we better hurry. <laughs> so, we've got a question from uh, Joshua, Facebook. Are the founding fathers, or certain of them, really deists? What effect did deism have in the formation of the United States? Now, uh, deists, as far as I can uh, I understand, I'd be happy if you could correct me, anyone out there in... Internet God wound up the world like God, a clock that's right, and let it right. go. That's right. There's, there's, a, there's a divine being out there, but it's not a being that is interested in interacting on a personal level with his creation. Created. See you later. Enjoy yourself. And the way that we learn of God is through just the natural world, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that fair? 
Belief in the existence of a supreme being, specifically of a creator who does not intervene in the universe. Exactly yeah. what you just said. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know how to answer that. I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to just pass it over to you guys. Did, were some of the framers deists? Yes. Yeah. They weren't all Christians. Some were yeah. deists. But the interesting thing to note is whether, um, for the ones that were deists, they could agree with the Christians that we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, in other words, though some of America's founding fathers were deists and not Christians who believed in the, the intervention uh, of God in our lives and God caring about our lives as the Bible teaches, uh, they could still connect with the Christians who were the founding fathers on the vast majority of the issues that were at hand in creating the new government and basing it upon um, even biblical principles that they could agree upon as well. Mm-hmm. No, that's good. And it says at the beginning, uh, in the preamble of the Constitution, we hold these truths to be self-evident, which would mean you don't need revelation from the Bible to come to these truths, which seems to be a deist assumption, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, like we can see, we can deduce, we can understand, we can comprehend. It's, it's self-evident. It's self-evident. Like, this stuff can be discovered without revelation, so... That, that may be. I don't know if that is. I think it's actually quite critical that there was deists amongst the founding fathers because it, in, it created an environment where you had different people of different faiths and levels of faith who were coming together and it prevented them from saying, okay, this is going to be the state church. So it was like, well, you can't do that because, well, you're of this faith and, and, and this person is a deist and this person over here. And so they've you know, it has forced them into a position in many ways where they have followed, you know, um, Roger Williams in, in Rhode Island, etc., to conclude that we must have religious liberty, mm-hmm. freedom for each person to worship according to the dictates of their conscience, even if you're a deist or an atheist or whatever else you want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was just reading a little bit about this before tonight to try and remember everything that we studied in the presentation, but um, apparently there was a time when they appealed to Congress to pass or well, put into the Constitution that our only God should be Jesus Christ, and it was rejected on the basis of what you just said, that they wanted to be a place for religious liberty for yeah. every religion. Yeah. If you're a Jew, how does that work out? Right. If you're a Muslim, how does that work out? And the framers of the U.S. Constitution were cognizant of the fact that they were going to have citizens participating in the American experience who were Jewish mm-hmm. and who were Muslim. And they didn't want to inhibit those people of those faiths from the free exercise of their religion. It's so beautiful because you have this, these principles from Scripture, but they're not, um, they're actually, how do you say this? They're principles from a correct understanding of all of Scripture, um, not like Lyle was saying, uh, a conflating of the various laws of the Old Testament and the thought that you could just apply them at your will, you know, in God's name. Yeah, great answers, guys. Okay, so uh, Brian from YouTube is asking, isn't there a difference between democracy, pure democracy, and a republic? Since I think a republic protects the rights of minorities, or uh, or what then cuz? I thought the other... Uh, yeah, then it gets a little confusing. Referred to this aspect. Okay, so let's just address the part of his question that I, I understand. It's a little bit of the end that I don't understand what he's asking. Maybe we could give him a chance to reword it and come back to it. Yeah, Brian, if you could, well, just reword the end of it, but yeah, um, I think, yeah. 
what's the answer to the question? Is there a difference between a pure democracy and a republic? And he's saying, I think that in Revelation 13, the speaking like a dragon is violating the principles of a republic. A pure democracy is mob mob rule. Mm -hmm. Right. It's that simple. And that's why you have a constitution. A pure democracy is, I probably shouldn't say too much about this because I've got a whole bunch of material on it in tomorrow night's presentation. (laughs) So that's not very far away, guys. You don't have to wait. But a pure democracy is ruled by the majority, which means that all minorities lose protection Mm -hmm. because the majority never needs protection because it's the majority. Mm -hmm. A republic has a constitution which limits the majority and protects the minorities. Yes. The United States of America was founded as a representative republic, um, or you could say a constitutional republic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how it was founded, legally speaking. So you have constitutional law, which in essence constitutes the nation and defines what the nation can be and must be. And then you have representatives who represent the people in Congress and in the Senate. And you have an executive branch who just makes sure every, everybody follows the law, basically. That's, that's, and then you have a judiciary who, defa- who interprets the law, right? Is that fair? You guys are smiling at me because yep. why? Tell yep. me, come on, I'm insecure. Because right. it's all happening. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. nailed it. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Excellent. Um, it's really brilliant, by the way, the whole idea of balance of powers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Checks it's, and balances. It's, 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 the whole idea of checks and balances is based on the biblical assumption that people are naturally selfish and will tend to be selfish mm-hmm. and hence disregard the needs and uh, wants of other people and the freedoms of other people. And so you have a balance of power. You have an executive branch which enforces the law. You have a judiciary that interprets the law and you have a legislature that creates the law. Mm-hmm. And all and really ultimately no laws are created but by the people who have representatives in the legislature. And then you have a constitution sitting on top of it all which guarantees the, the guarantees the rights of all of the citizenry. It really is a beautiful umbrella of freedom and safety for all people. And, and one of the ways that this is in line with God is that God wants people to come to him freely of their own free will. And so if you set up a system of government that imposes a certain brand of religious worship onto people, well, now no one can come to God freely mm-hmm. because of, in their heart, they really love God for who he is. And so, any, any form of government that compels the conscience, that tells someone, this is how you must believe, this is how you must speak, this is how you must practice your life, is a government that is virtually guaranteeing that people cannot come to God. People should just keep watching because we're going to talk more about those yep. things. Yes! <laughs> Fire it up. Okay, good job, guys. Thanks for uh, those answers. Um, I hope that helps, Brian. And uh, Okay, so Matt from Facebook is, no, from YouTube is asking. Um, future question, knowing what the Bible, knowing that the Bible points to the U.S. as being the second beast of Revelation 13, what does the Bible tell us about what is to come for the United States? Mark of the beast, etc. And when? We're going to touch on all these <laughs> Everybody's next, trying to get ahead. Next yeah, few nights, yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is just foundational. Keep watching. Okay, cool. Is that our so answer? This is a nine-part series. Okay. Yeah. Remember that. There's nine-part series. <laughs> is this our answer? So we team? begin with the history. We begin okay. with the foundation. We work next through to the current, question. and then we go to the, through, through <laughs> to the future. Yes. Good job. All right. Well, that's your answer. 
hope that you're satisfied with that. My, my brother, uh, was that Matt? Yeah, Matt. Um, since you guys uh, don't want to answer, I'm going to go ahead and answer. Just kidding. We're going to move on. <laughs> okay. Okay, so John has a question from YouTube. Uh, by the way, uh, okay. By the way, Lyle made a point last Thursday about the power coming from the people, a republic based on Revelation 13. Most translations say that the land beast made or forced them to make an image. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me, let me read this again. Let me remake this point. The Bible yes. says here in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 14, and I will say this about translations. There are translate, you have a translations and you have paraphrases, and then you have a whole gray area in between where various translations are going to mix. Now, a, tr- a, a paraphrase, uh, something like your NLT or something like that, which is a great reading Bible, great devotional Bible, not such a great doctrinal Bible because it is attempting to translate thought for thought mm-hmm. rather than word for word. That makes it great for devotions. For doctrinal teaching, you're looking for something that is going to be closer to a word-for-word translation. Now, of course, we have the disability in that we are presenting in English, um, and so we are working from an English translation. I think we probably have several different translations here. But when you go to a word-for-word translation, what you're going to find is something very significant here in verse 14. The Bible says that the second beast deceives those that live on the earth by the means of the miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the first beast. So this is the second, the land beast doing miracles in the sight of the sea beast, the first one, and deceiving the earth, saying to those that live on the earth mm-hmm. that they should make. Yep. That's right an image, right, to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. And so the key point here is that it is the people, and you're going to find this in your word-for-word translations, the people of the earth are the ones who are making an image to the first beast. So the power to create a copy of the first beast lies with the people. That's a Republican form of government. That's a Republican form of government gone wrong, but it's a Republican form of government because the power lies with the people. The direction is coming from top down, no question about that. The Bible makes that very plain, but the power lies with the people, and that's a very significant um, point. point in identifying the second beast right here. I just agree. <laughs> oh, Looked like Sharissa had a quote to share. <laughs> you guys are so, you know, these lovebirds over here. You no, know, no, I see a quote on the screen, man. I'm not going to let her go without sharing that with us. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, oh. you know, uh, agree or disagree with Lyle's point. I had never heard that argument before your presentation, and I thought it was it very, very much impressed me. I was like, oh, interesting. I'd never kind of seen that, and so I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not like. Uh, Brian thinking that it wasn't a good argument. I think it was a really interesting point, and I'm going to really look into it. But I want to say, if you disagree with that particular argument uh, of that one part of the text, just don't forget all else that the text said and the larger body of material that Lyle presented, because I think he made a very compelling case for the identification of that that power being the United States of America. Mm -hmm. And to me, the most uh, prescient was the fact that the horns, which represent in the Bible a power or the governmental system or power, 
um, had no crowns. Mm-hmm. But the two previous powers referenced, uh, Imperial Rome and uh, the Church, uh, it, it, they had crowns. So you have pagan Rome, you have uh, the, the continent of Europe uh, under the control of the Church, and you have crowns on the horns of those respective powers uh, mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And so with the United States, you don't have any horns. Mm-hmm. It makes, I mean, this is a unique kind of a government. It, is. it doesn't have a crown. It's a different form of government. Mm-hmm. I, I like what you say there because these are supportive, supporting points. Yeah. Um, I think the main, your main two points, you can identify the, you can identify the second beast of Revelation 13 based on two points. And these are the two most important you find in any prophecy. When you're going to make an identification of any prophecy, your two most important points is time and place. Mm. They're like a grid reference on a map, the your A, your, you know, your, your A and your B axis. Mm. If you get the time period in which the prophecy is being fulfilled, and then you find the geographical location for the fulfillment of that prophecy, when those two intersect, you're going to find just with that, nothing else, you'll find the identification of exactly what you're looking for. So and good. that's exactly what you see right here. You know, when you see, you know, the, uh, the deadly wound take place, you see it in 1798. And then you look at, you know, and I saw another beast rising out of the earth. So you've got this process of one coming up to, one, you know, rising to power as the other is going down. One's going into captivity, the other's coming up. It intersects right there. It's from the land. It's not from the sea. Yeah. You know, it doesn't leave you any other options other than the United States. Yeah, that's it. Well, great, great. Thanks for for making that comment and asking the question, John. Much appreciated. I hope that you appreciated what what Lyle said, even if you disagree. (laughs) We appreciate that, that uh, you're interacting with us. Uh, Okay, so we've got a question from Leah here. We're going to see if we can nail these last two questions before we wrap up for the night. Uh, uh, Leah is asking, was there anything good that came out of slavery in America? No. <laughs> Next question. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no. Um, no. Um, but I want to say something. I mentioned in my first present, in the first presentation of the series, when we looked at the history, I talked about how the Plymouth Pilgrims came, they united with the Native Americans, had the first Thanksgiving meal. Um, they were, they were Christian and that governed the way that they treated others. The Jamestown colony in the South, um, just on, in Virginia, modern day Virginia, was uh, basically a money-making venture. Out of that came the discovery of tobacco from the Native Americans and became popular in London. They were shipping it back. And that's what gave rise that and the, the um, Industrial Revolution with cotton in the South. Tobacco and cotton were the main um, uh, crops in the South that were being harvested. Um, the only reason I'm mentioning this is because I should, I, I didn't specify in the presentation, I didn't have time, but out of, out of America, part of America's early time came what we call capitalism and free market capitalism. It's the way that uh, our financial system works in North America. And it's actually created what many believe to be called or what many call the American dream. You can come with nothing, 50 bucks in your pocket to America and you can end up a millionaire. And this is actually true. And we see it because a recent number that I heard this afternoon is that over 80% of millionaires in America are first generation millionaires. They're self-made millionaires. They made their money themselves. They didn't inherit it. And so if the, the, the system in the South had not been built on the backs of poor slaves, but rather if they had been paid, if they had been able to, to make it financially and had been treated like, like all of the other citizens, it would have been a wonderful thing. Um, but sadly, um, 
I can't say that anything good came out of slavery whatsoever. Did God overrule for good in certain ways? Yes. I have African-American friends that are close friends of mine whose families are Christian, committed Christians, and they've told me it's because my ancestors had to cling to the Lord when they were suffering in the terrible clutches of slavery in the South. And so God overruled and many people uh, drew closer to him as a result and leaned upon him and and got um, freedom from slavery, like Harriet Tubman, like we heard about tonight, and then freed many others until finally there was an end put to it uh, during the Civil War and after the Civil War with the signing of the 13th Amendment. Um, and so, yes, the answer is no. And uh, the side answer is free market capitalism is something we saw grow out of the economy of North America that is a blessing. I believe it's the best system as opposed to socialism, communism. Um, it's not perfect, but it's a system where we can go and we can make money and uh, raise our own socioeconomic level uh, in that sense. So I hope that answers the question. Oh, I'm going to disagree. Well, <laughs> you know yeah, well, I have something. I just have a short thing I'm going to say as soon as you're finished, Lyle, because I want to give you the stage. Um, okay, so I'm going to agree and disagree at the same time. <laughs> So nothing good came out of slavery, but there has been a lot of good that has come out of having an African community in America. That we're only just starting to see here in Australia in the last 20 years or so is really when we've only had a significant African population in Australia. And I just love the diversity and, you know, the different uh, cultures and so forth that they bring to our country and to America. True. But that could have so come without slavery. That's right. So, <laughs> so yeah. exactly. It could have yeah. come in the way that it's coming to Australia. Correct. So nothing good came from slavery, but a lot of good came from having African people in America. Well, I want to disagree Absolutely. with you. Okay. I'm going to disagree, <laughs> I'm gonna disagree <laughs> with you right now. All right. Let's, uh, let's uh, just have it out. Let's, you know? all, let's all fight. Uh, so the question is, was there anything good that came out of slavery in America. I would say there's nothing good about slavery, yes. and there was nothing good about slavery in America, but yes, good came out of it. There's a difference. There's a, there's a fine difference. Oh, God overruled. That's right. There's a verse in the, in the Bible that says, that says, that says, right, it says, for all things work together for good to them who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. So did you know that, that there, were, there were great goods that came out of slavery? And this is what I mean. This is what I mean. There were individual people who were slaves who shined the glory of God so brightly and so beautifully and so mm -hmm. unbelievably that the universe stopped and looked and said, wow. So there were angels watching and God was watching and there were persecuted people who were being treated like animals and some of them shined like the brightness of heaven because of their, their beautiful characters and beautiful souls who endured uh, horrible, torturous existences, but yet uh, were dignified, Christ-following human beings and never let slavery steal from them their humanity and their dignity. And that was a beautiful thing that came out of slavery. But there was nothing good about slavery. There is nothing good about forcing another person to function as an animal. Is that a good disagreement? <laughs> I like it. So we, none of us disagree. We're just uh, <laughs> yeah. playing with words here. Um, cool beans. Last question for the evening. And I want to thank you guys for uh, spending this time with us ahead of time in case I forget when we're done answering this question. And uh, Brian is asked, oh, to correct the earlier question, can you clarify what the two horns on the lamb refer to? That's a really good question. Is that tomorrow night's presentation? No, we should, oh, is it? No, no, no. We, should, we, should, we should say something about it now. It refers to the separation of powers. So horns represent powers in the Bible, 
and uh, without the crowns, no kingly power, but the two uh, separated powers that form the basis for the U.S. Constitution is a separation of church and state. It's uh, civil and religious liberty. Mm-hmm. And I just want to share a quote on this by um, Clinton Rossiter. He's an American historian, and he says this, The twin doctrines of separation of church and state and liberty of individual conscience are the marrow of our democracy, if not indeed America's most magnificent contribution to the freeing of Western man. Mm. So that was a biblical explanation backed up by a historical mm. quote from a historian. Love it. Okay, hey, John Adams, you've asked one last question, but we're not going to get to it tonight. So that means, John, to have your question answered <laughs> by us directly, we'll look forward to seeing you uh, tomorrow night. We want to Thank you all for joining us and also point your attention one last time to the fact that if you want more information, you've been seeing through the course of our Q&A and through the course of each night's presentation, a number that you can call or text. If you like free Bible study guides, if you like someone to call and pray with you, if you'd just be interested in even someone calling to talk with you about scripture and faith, then please don't hesitate to text or to call the number on your screen. We really appreciate your time, and we appreciate you. Uh, But even uh, better news than that is God appreciates you, and God appreciates your time, and we're so glad that you could have joined us. God bless you. We're praying for you, and we'll see you hopefully tomorrow night. And the presentation tomorrow night is entitled, Lyle? Uh, Tomorrow night. What is it? (laughs) It's presentation number five. (laughs) I know what it's about. I can't remember Uh, the title for it. 2020 Unmasked. What is it, Leah? American. America and the end is the presentation. Uh, It is indeed. Okay, God bless you guys. We'll see you then. Take good care of yourselves until tomorrow. Bye.